Evidence and Answers. Evil poses a problem for Christianity, but how do the other world religions address this issue? Do they provide better answers to the problem of evil? How does the Christian response to evil differ from the other world religions? You're listening to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author and teacher in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Joining Pat today to address this issue is Dr. Winfred Corderan, Professor Emeritus of Religion and Philosophy at Taylor University in Indiana. Let's join Pat and his guest, Dr. Winfred Corderan, as they point out significant differences between Christianity and the world religions on the problem of evil. God and the problem of evil. This dilemma poses a problem for the Christian, but not only for the Christian. This is also a challenge for the other world religions as well. How does Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, and Islam answer the challenge? Which one offers the best, most reasonable answer? You're listening to Evidence and Answers, where we provide evidence for faith in Christ and answers to some of the toughest challenges Christians face as they engage their world for Christ. With me today is Dr. Winfred Corduin. Dr. Corduin received his Ph.D. from Rice University in Texas and is Professor Emeritus of Philosophy and Religion at Taylor University in Upland, Indiana. He's the author of several outstanding books on world religions, including one of my favorites, Neighboring Faiths and the Tapestry of Faiths. Well, Dr. Cordwin, welcome to the show. Thank you, Pat. It's great to be with you. Well, the problem of evil poses a challenge for Christianity, but it also poses a challenge for the other world religions, doesn't it? I mean, all must provide a reasonable answer to this problem. Isn't that right? Well, that's correct. In some ways, there is a difference. Within Christianity, the problem has pretty much been defined in terms of the apparent inconsistency between God and all his attributes and the reality of evil. In other religions, that paradox would not exist because they don't have that view of God, nor necessarily that of evil, but certainly every human being is wondering, why me? Why am I suffering? Why is there any evil in the world at all? So everyone has at least a problem of evil that they try to deal with. Well, let's start with one of the oldest religions, then, Hinduism. According mm-hmm. to Hinduism, what is the explanation for the origin of evil? There isn't any. Hinduism, as well as Jainism, its close relative, never actually says that there is an origin, if by that you mean some point in time, like the fall in Christianity, evil is simply there. And evil consists of our being, our existing in the universe. I mean, to be or to exist is to suffer. That's the universal equation in South Asian religions. So, I am existing, therefore I'm suffering. And the problem is, because of the belief in reincarnation, I'm not only existing and suffering in this lifetime, but I'm existing and suffering in who knows how many more billions of lifetimes. Now, from what I understand in Hinduism, the problem of evil is tied to the law of karma, 
Is that correct? Well, karma works uh, towards evil simply in the fact that the karma provides a blueprint which then determines what the next life or the next lives after this one will be. Now, karma by itself can be both positive and negative. Karma actually means action or duty, and so it tells us what we shall be and what we will have to do. Now, there is also an underlying notion of what would make for bad evil, for a bad life, for bad karma, and that would be the idea of papas, which is an offense against God, or enas, which is sin, or adharma, which means to depart from the correct way. But all of those are ultimately only relative. In many schools of Hinduism, they are only illusion. The real problem is to get out of the cycle of existence altogether. I mean, think about it. If you are a frog right now, now I don't know whether frogs are happy or sad, whether they suffer. Sometimes they do. I've had some in my labs where I know they did. But being a frog by itself is not necessarily that big of an issue. But if you think that you may be in for a million lifetimes as amphibians, followed by another million lifetimes as crustaceans, then you begin to see that life is pretty hopeless. And so the very fact that we exist in the universe already is the problem that Hinduism has to deal with. At the same time, and that's the point that I make in my chapter, it does not really address what evil is all about, namely the fact that we have been separated from our Creator and that there is a gap between ourselves and our Creator that we cannot restore on our own. So then how is Hinduism defining evil exactly? Well, there is evil, as I said, in terms of offending against the gods as a just neglecting a god or something like that, not in terms of being eternally separated from a god, or not keeping the laws of Hinduism, the laws that the priests have established, and so forth. So it's a relatively horizontal way of looking at evil. It's not a deep-down defect in the human nature that we have inherited. It's just something that we do and that we could stop doing, but that not doing any evil acts would not get us out of that virtually unending cycle of reincarnations. So what is the answer to the problem of evil and suffering in Hinduism? Well, you've got to find a way of getting off that wheel. And so traditionally they talk about three ways. One is the way of works, which is to follow all of the commandments in the Vedas. 
And that's pretty much impossible. The second one would be the way of mysticism, and you try to experience your oneness with the pantheistic principle behind everything, which is called Brahman. And to do that, you have to spend a lifetime meditating and separating yourself from the world. So that's not very easy. The third way is the way of devotion, which means that you attach yourself to a single god, such as Krishna, and he, supposedly, if you please him sufficiently, is going to take you off that wheel once you die, and then you will be in a state of bliss apart from being reincarnated again. Well, it seems like the third one, if, you know, in my limited experience, it seems like the third one seems to be the most popular with the uh, Hindus. Oh, absolutely. But, of course, being attached to one God does not mean that you don't also recognize and venerate all of the other gods. And we should not be thinking of a concept of grace here in the Christian sense or anything like that, except for one school, which we can leave to the side for the moment. But being devoted to that one God who's going to help you out means also spending a lifetime of worshiping and serving that god or goddess. And even then, you're really living in a state of suspense and you really don't know what the outcome is going to be. And you're going to be battling the spirits and all kinds of distractions all along. So how would the Hindu address, for example, the tsunami that uh, killed thousands of people? How would they address that, or what would be the cause or answer to deal with that? Well, that's just karma, that those who were killed or were suffering from it obviously did something in a previous life that put them in the way of that disaster, and others didn't. And that doesn't seem fair, but Hindus accept that, that Somehow, there must have been something in the past that we don't know about that brought about that disaster and that suffering, and so we simply have to accept it. Now, if we go on, then the more philosophically-minded Hindus might say it really doesn't matter all that much because ultimately all of that Suffering is maya or some form of delusion or derived being anyway. But Hinduism becomes a religion of resignation when it comes to looking at evil. Well, let's move to Buddhism. Uh, does Buddhism have an explanation for the origin of evil? The origin of evil, yes, very definitely. Buddhism says, first of all, that there is an origin, namely in yourself, in your desire, your attachment to the world. Now, depending on what school of Buddhism you're talking about, 
you can either think of the world as being totally impermanent and always changing, or you can think of it as not existing or as merely the projection of your mind. But the evil consists of the fact that you think that you exist and you think that the world exists and still you're clinging on to the illusion of an existing or permanent world. So there is a cause, and the cause is you. See, well, how does Buddhism address then the problem of evil? What is the answer then? The answer is to recognize, well, if we look at Theravada Buddhism, you recognize that you do not exist, there is no self, and that the delusion that you exist attaches itself to a world that is forever changing. So you think you enjoy life. Well, you're going to die. You enjoy the love of other people. Well, they're going to die. You try to cling to something permanent, but there is nothing permanent. And so evil is the inevitable outcome of yourself sticking yourself to the idea that somehow the world is real when, as a matter of fact, there is nothing real insofar as that you have no self and the world is just forever changing. Nothing exists any longer than it takes for you to think that it exists. In the time that you snap your fingers, things in the world will have changed 60 times, according to some sages. And so you think, I like this, I'm going to stick with this, but it's going to be gone. So if you love, say, your husband or wife, and you attach yourself to them, and then they die, and you mourn, you suffer, you're in grief. That's ultimately because you've allowed yourself to be attached. If you had only been smart enough to know that they, like everything else in the world, are impermanent, you would have saved yourself that suffering. So, you know, in the Buddhism that I've studied and experienced, to me, that is a denial of reality and your basic humanity. Would you say that? It comes across as very harsh. And yes, that's my emotional reaction as well. And the only way that you can start to make sense of that, I think, that, that it can mean anything to you, is to realize that ultimately they don't exist any more than you do. And ultimately their redemption lies in recognizing their non-existence as much as you need to recognize yours. And it's a mutual thing. The only way of redemption is found in that very nihilistic-seeming attitude. Oh, I see. Well... Let's move on to the religion of Islam. Now, in mm -hmm. Islam, I assume that they have a similar 
explanation to the origin of evil as Christianity and Judaism. Is that correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Islam has the account, more or less, of Adam and Eve in the garden. And, of course, they also have Allah, the Creator God. And Allah had forbidden Adam to eat of the fruit of one tree. But Adam did so, and that's the origin of evil to a certain extent. Now, from what I understand, Islam teaches that all things happen according to the predestined will of Allah. Is that correct? That is correct. So wouldn't that make Allah then the source of evil, or the cause of evil? Well, no. In fact, I think in Christianity we have a much more serious problem concerning uh, the confrontation between God and the reality of evil, because in Islam, evil isn't as bad as it is, and Allah can ultimately overlook it. Because here's the second part of the story. Adam has eaten of the fruit, and so now he is separated from God. Okay, now are we talking about a fall in the Christian sense? Are we talking about an original sin, as it were, that's going to infect the rest of humanity? No, nothing like it. Allah winds up teaching Adam how to become more pious, and then he simply forgives Adam, and Adam is restored to fellowship with Allah. In Christianity, no such thing would ever be possible because we believe that there is no way in which God can simply reconcile himself to evil without an atonement. It would be an affront to the holiness of God to think that God could just overlook it and say, well, Adam, you were a bad boy, but I'm going to teach you how to be a better person, and then everything is okay again. Well, interesting. You know, how does the Muslim then face the problem of evil and suffering that comes upon his life? Well, it comes from Allah, and it's a test. All of life is a test of whether he really wants to submit to Allah or not. And so, regardless of what the evil is, he needs to accept it and submit to Allah and say, Well, this comes from God, he has sent it, but it does not stand in my way, or it should not stand in my way of submitting to God. I will continue to live as a pious Muslim and fulfill all of my obligations, and Allah is gracious and merciful and forgiving, and so even though I cannot have assurance, I have hope that in the end my good works will outweigh any of the suffering that I endure now and that I will pass the test of being a faithful servant of Allah all along. And so in the meantime, whatever evil happens, I will just have to accept it. I see, and I believe that Christianity is the only one that offers really a true 
message of hope even in the worst of times because someday evil shall be defeated well it has been defeated and we are now in the stage where this is slowly going to be implemented and then at one point the full glorious implementation will come by way of God and not from ourselves and so yes I, I think you're absolutely right we have the worst problem of evil from anyone because we have the highest conception of a creator but because we have such a high conception of a creator we can also believe that this very creator is going to abolish the evil that is infesting his creation right now. But if you're starting with some kind of a godlet that doesn't really have control over creation, or an arbitrary god who just plays with evil the way that someone might play with domino stones or something like that, then they may not describe evil in the same drastic way, but they surely don't have a God who is powerful enough to overcome such evil either. So we have both the worst problem or the worst variety of the problem, but we also have the greatest hope, which is ultimately the only hope, because only a God with the attributes of the God of the Bible and a God who was great enough to sacrifice his own son for the sake of eradicating evil is really one who is able to deal with it. And that's where our hope lies. Yes, and as we come to an end on this segment here, Dr. Cordwin, how do you know that evil shall be defeated? How can we know that? Well, because God has said so. Now, this is not something that we can look at in isolation, obviously. We need to look at the credentials of our scriptures as revelation. We need to have an independent way of knowing that there is a God. Theistic arguments, such as the cosmological argument, help from a purely rational side. Ultimately, when I look at the world, I'm saying... For one thing, this is about as bad as things can get. This is the worst of all possible worlds. Then I look at the world and think, this is a wonderful world nonetheless. This is the kind of world that could not possibly exist unless there were a creator who has all of the attributes that allow him to finally get rid of evil. So I have an independent confidence in the fact that there is this God who has revealed himself, both in nature, even though there are defects in nature, and in his Son and in the Bible. And I, on the basis of this confidence and assurance, then I can know that this evil is only temporary and will ultimately serve the purpose of glorifying the Creator. 
Thank you, Dr. Corduan. You're listening to Evidence and Answers, and my guest this week is Dr. Winfred Corduan, Professor Emeritus of Philosophy and Religion at Taylor University and an author of several great books, including Neighboring Faiths and one of my favorite, Tapestry of Faiths. And Dr. Corduan, you also have a website that people can go to. Tell us about that website briefly. Well, you can get to it simply by going to www.wincorduan.com. And from there, you can branch out to lots of places, a listing of my books, my resume, my more or less daily blog, and I'm about eight days behind on that now, various resources that I have, travelogues, my travels into various countries learning about religions, essays on various topics ranging from who were the Magi to Jesus in the New Testament and so forth. I have an enormous amount of fun, if that's the appropriate word, putting up things on the web and sharing what I've learned with people. So if you just remember Win Corduan is W-I-N-C-O-R-D-U-A-N, all lowercase, all together. Then uh, you can find my website, or you can just type in my name with capital letters and a space in between and Google it, and it'll be right there. You can't get away from me once you start to look for me. <laughs> Great. Well, thanks for being with us this week. Well, it's been my pleasure, Pat. Thanks so much for having me on. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Dr. Winfred Cordron, Professor Emeritus of Religion and Philosophy at Taylor University. If you missed any part of this interview, log on at evidenceandanswers.org and you can listen to this entire interview and enjoy other great interviews and resources right there on the site. Pat is the director of the Pacific Apologetic Center, a subsidiary ministry of the Bible Institute of Hawaii. Pat's ministry relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. If you've been blessed by today's show, would you please consider supporting this show and Pat's ministry in prayer and with a financial gift by logging on at evidenceandanswers.org. Join us again each week for more Evidence and Answers with Pat and his friends as they continue to provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers.